Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So when's Bob Dylan's birthday? Is it tomorrow? Tomorrow. Have we wedding anniversary. It's your wedding anniversary. Aww. We're joined on this very special occasion to mark the wedding anniversary of Sid Griffin. By <laughs> <laughs> Sid Griffin. <laughs> Did you deliberately get married on Bob, D- Bob Dylan's birthday? Was that a deliberate ruse? <laughs> Sorry, better cover up the price tag. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea it was Bob Dylan's birthday till uh, till recently, and uh, it was get me to the church on time because there are, are two Montague hotels in London, and I nervously got a cab to the wrong one. Oh, oh no. my God! Yeah. No grief. That's that's a very. And you bad... thought the first thing you thought was she hasn't turned up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, literally, the, the groom's still standing at the altar. He's yeah. not the uh, the groom's still standing at standing the wrong the altar. altar. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, it's, del- it's delightful, del- delightful to be joined by Sid Griffin, old friend of the pod, musician, band member, all kinds of angles on this uh, on this subject, which we can't escape talking about on this special day, uh, special occasion of the 80th birthday of Bob Dylan. And I suppose it's fair to say that the, the, what we decided to do was we're, we're, we're going to allow all three of us to just vent our particular angle on Bob Dylan. Yes, that's because I think it's fair to say, I don't know if you've found this, Mark and Sid, if you occasionally get asked on radio programs to talk about Bob Dylan, you always think you're asking me the wrong question. You know what I mean? Because they've yes. got some kind of agenda. Yeah. They've got some idea of how they look at Bob Dylan. And you think, no, what I want to talk about is this, that, or the other, which personally fascinates me. And I suppose it's probably true to say that all three of us have been listening to Bob Dylan for what more than fifty years, yeah. surely. Yes. yes, more than fifty years. Yes. So we got a, a certain amount of mileage on this, you know. During uh, during that time, we've kind of developed our own our own kind of angles. So what we're going to do is e- each of the three of us is going to is going to expound this theory, vent this, you know, exercise this hobby horse about Bob Dylan. Fair enough. Who wants to go first? Mark, are you going to go first? Should we get Sid first? Okay, Sid, go on. You go first, Sid. Over to you, Sid Griffin. Well, I I, I I came into Bob Dylan. I bought the uh, 19... I, I My sis, older sister had some of his records. And for some reason, going down a, a short Kentucky hallway, literally 20 feet maybe not even 15 feet, and borrowing her albums wasn't good enough. I had to have the same album. I don't know why that is. And I started off, the, the first one, as I recall, was uh, the, the Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits. Now, I knew the previous four albums because my sister played them, but I got the Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, which I was so proud of. There's something about owning something yourself, and it had not the sure. your iconic uh, poster of Bob Dylan inside it. I don't know if that, that came with the, the British copies, but it's the it's the black uh, and white poster of Bob Dylan, and his hair is a uh, 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 primary colored hair re- reflecting the the curls of his head, and uh, it was it that poster was in more college and high school more college and high school rooms dormitories. I mean, you saw it everywhere in the United States. Every record store had that that poster up, and I put it on the wall, and of course my parents were completely puzzled. It was next to a a picture of Hendrix and a dashiki playing somewhere, and they had no idea who these guys were and why they're on the wall. And I made I made the curious leap from uh, I thought he was just a very 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 good pop musician lyricist. I did like his singing, particularly in the '60s. I thought he he didn't have a fine voice, but he used what he had in a terrific way. And I've I made the leap uh, that he is a uh, a Cicero or a Shakespearean type. Figure. I mean, writer, not character in a Shakespeare or Cicero play or speech. I mean, I made the leap that he he is culturally important after going a couple of decades of thinking he's just very, very good craftsman at what he does. I, I, I disagree now. I think he is one for the ages. I think he's in the, the very short club, the very small club, the very uh, limited club of, of popsters from the late... Uh, 20th century and early 21st century that will be discussed in 200 years. I, I think there's no question Dylan's in, in that uh, in that group. 
And I can't quite describe what flipped it to uh, Dylan leaving just being another popular uh, rock and roll guy to being someone that I think is is culturally not just important. I think he's mega important. I think outside maybe, maybe the there par- was one song was the one song that did it. Well, certainly visions of Joanna is the one that so many people reach reach for. But what I find is uh, many many times I, I compare him to like Miles Davis has the five jazz. Uh, Miles Davis goes to, like Picasso has five periods of his painting where he goes, you know, Cubist and Blue Period and all that. And Miles Davis goes from, and just like Miles, Dylan reflects physically his appearance. He's a hobo sort of guy. He's a rock and roll Carnaby Street dandy. He's back to a farmer of the uh, the soil in upstate New York. And now he's this gypsy guy in the Rolling Thunder View. Miles Davis had the same thing that when he changed his music, he changed his appearance. Miles Davis looking at a very skinny tie, yeah. beautiful suits in the old days. And then he started getting wearing bell bottoms and all that stuff with britches brew and in a silent way and so on and so forth. And then he ended up dressed like he was an earth, wind, and fire. Okay. And uh, Dylan is, reflects that same thing. He makes a musical change and he makes a, a physical change, entering into the character of what he's doing. But I think it was the sheer number, the, the weight of incredible Dylan songs, lyrics that came out, that came out, that came out, that, that turned the tide. And then the other thing... Uh, has to be when you're talking about Bob Dylan is someone will say they'll throw out a name and I don't want to throw out another pop guy's name because it, it, it irritates people no end if you hold up their hero and lessen yeah. them com- in comparison to your hero. So True. I don't want to throw out any names, but people will say when I've spoken about Dylan for one of my books, what about blah, blah, blah? He did a similar thing. And I'll say, think about it. Does that person have songs that are saying it say peace rallies, Right. Does that person have songs that, uh, if it's a torch singer on stage, not just a Barb Younger, but a, uh, a, a one of the old guard, sings one of those uh, make you feel my love type torch ballads, does that person have a right on brothers, here we come kind of song? And usually the answer is they might have one of the three categories, but that's all they've got. And does, does that person, you know, Motown, uh, Barry Gordy famously said, we have our songs have to tell a story. They have a beginning, a middle, and a conclusion. That's how I want Smokey and Holland Dozier Holland and Norman Whitfield to write. And Dylan has those songs as well. He's 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 ticked all the boxes. In fact, he's 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 destroyed the categories. He's defined some of those categories. And I find whenever somebody says, "Well, my guy is so and so," or this <laughs> female singer, I don't mean to keep keep it in the male of the species. I think Dylan's the only one that, that touches all the boxes. You can go to many a peace rally or protest rally and and not hear anything but some Dylan songs, perhaps a young person's song that I don't know of now because I'm not I'm not a hip guy anymore. Give <laughs> peace a chance. You can I I go to the I used to love going to uh, cocktail lounges in L.A. and and the only other guy. Some of my friends went, but the only guy that I consistently see was Michael Nesmith. He would be in some of these places. He likes it too. And invariably, somebody at Nucleus Nuance, which is a cocktail lounge in L.A., would sing a schmaltzy version of a Dylan soppy ballad. And it would always work well before Making You Feel My Love and all that. And I've seen country and Western guys that would probably loathe Bob Dylan on a personal level if they got to know him. They'd just find him alien and and, and bizarre. Would do uh, uh, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You or something along those lines. He's done so much so well. It's just the sheer weight of it, to me, becomes undeniable. And one last thing uh, is his songs. I'm going to quote... Oh, what was that supermodel that said our movie is uh, multi-textural? And I laughed when I read it in The Observer. I think Dylan's songs have layers. I mean, you can look at some of Dylan's songs and years later, you realize it has a different layer than what you initially thought. I love 25 Miles by Edmund Starr, but I just know it's 25 Miles by Edmund Starr. It doesn't have different layers. I don't think it's one less, uh, any iota great than a record than it is. But Dylan's songs really, really, really develop in his best ones and age through time. And I just think he he, he will be here in, in 200 years. He will be discussed. He's We know he's in universities now being uh, discussed and debated amongst the, the, the classes. And I think he will be there in 200 years. Somebody at the University of Warwickshire, a young Andrew Mayo, will be out there giving a lecture on Bob Dylan. Now, it might be a Zoom lecture, like like this kind of thing. That's how I've told the universities are going to go. But I think there's no question. And you'll have a learned man 
standing there and behind will be a bookshelf or bookcase. And many of the, the Tomies on it will be Bob Dylan books or books about Bob Dylan. Excuse me. No question. No question. Oh, and one more. His, his prose writing, which we always used to wonder about, is it any good? Now from his biography, we know it's good. And a lot of people, uh, I know that Michael Henderson in the Times wasn't as keen on Dylan's uh, poetry as as I am, but I, I like his beat poetics that end, they were the, the reverse side of the 60s albums. I end up uh, on the two of uh, the pamphlets that uh, you got at his concerts. He had some more of those beat poetry in there. So I think, I mean, you know, what, what does a guy have to do to, to become this all-timer, this G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. It, it's, it's Dylan. It is Dylan, no question. I mean, his peer group says it, much less us. His peer group says it, you know, the, the John Lennons and so on and so forth, they all say it, you know, David Bowie's song for Bob Dylan. And invariably, if you talk to enough of these guys long enough, be it uh, Fog- John Fogarty or, or, or Bob Marley, invariably Dylan's name will pop up. It comes in, and favorably favorably well look that's very it's very persuasive extremely convincing let me go next yes because i'm going to just focus on one thing because you've talked about the sheer range of what he does and the amount of it and the layers of it i just want to talk about one thing uh and similarly i'm going to go back to when i first heard bob dylan when i was like 14 1964 first time to bring bob dylan records home my father who wasn't known for uh, making pronouncements about pop music, when he heard Bob Dylan playing in the other room, he would always say the same thing. He'd always say, seriously, he'd say, do you call that singing? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he wasn't being particularly, he wasn't winding me up or anything. Not That's what he thought. thought. Do you call that singing? And it's quite interesting because, you know, 50 years later or longer, that's still the most common objection you hear to Bob Dylan. It's the way he sings, you know. Some people only find his songs acceptable, and they might admire the songs, but they only find them acceptable when they're done by other people, and particularly other people who, Adele is a good example, who who accord with their kind of standard measure of what a good singer is. And I've decided I don't agree because... I, I can like songs by Bob Dylan done by other people. And usually if people put an album out, it's got a Bob Dylan song on. It'll probably be the best song on the album. But it will st- still not sound as satisfying to me as a song done by him. In fact, I often find that Bob Dylan songs done by other people, sound they come over a little bit pompous. They sound as if they people are people are kind of quoting them. They sound as if I shall now introduce a piece of great work into my act here, which you all recognise <laughs> as a great work. Yes. Whereas when he sings them, he doesn't sound like that at all. It simply sounds as if he's expressing parts of his personality, and that's not just on those. Obviously, most of the things he sings, he wrote them, he wrote himself, but that doesn't apply to everything, and so. Even when he sings songs which weren't written by him, he sounds as though they come from him. So his singing, I decided, is the thing I, I like most mm. about him, uh, out of absolutely everything. And it's not just that he's got the range, and I don't, I don't just mean the standard vocal range, but in the sense that he can do everything from a kind of you know, soupy country tune to a kind of sexy rock and roll song to absolutely anything. And it'll sound as if, if he owns it for the period that he's singing it, you know, because it's that seems to me to be the thing that's kept him fascinating for more than 50 years. You know, you see, it's like the Frank Carson, the old comedian, used to say, it's the way I tell them. And, it, you know, it, it is with Bob Dylan. It's the way he sings them. You know, it's like the jokes of Woody Allen are funny because they're coming from Woody Allen. You know, it's the combination <clears throat> yeah. of the material mm-hmm. and the personality. And, and, you know, so when we talk about Bob Dylan as a songwriter, I often think to myself, well, what he does is not reducible to, to notes on a stave or words on a page. It's, the value is the way he delivers those words. And, and most things he sings are more memorable because of the way he sings them. And I was reminded of this a few years ago. Well, it must be more than a few years ago. It must be more than 10 years ago. So he's been dead quite a while. 
I don't know if you ever saw it. The late TV chef Keith Floyd was once mm. was once cooking, and he used to do these things kind of live, and he'd just have to amuse the cameraman while he waited for the souffle to rise or whatever. And and he 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 just launched into toy at the words of just like Tom Thumb's blues, and he kept going all the way through. And I thought that's absolutely extraordinary. And then I realised. I know the words of just like Tom Thumbs Blues. So if you'll indulge me, gentlemen, I'm going to I'm going to require your assistance on this live demonstration of the fact that people who've been listening to Bob Dylan for 50 years have the words of just like Tom Thumbs Blues so scored in their memory that they can call them up. So as you know, it begins when you're lost in the rain in Juarez and it's Easter time, time too. There you go, Mark. And your gravity fails. And what happens after that, Sid? And negativity will pull you through. Don't put on any. Don't put on any airs. Where, Mark? Down in Rue Morgue Avenue. Because they've got some hungry women there. And what will they do, Sid? And men, they'll make a mess you out of you. Mess. <laughs> now, now, if you see Sid Annie, please tell her what, Mark. Thanks a lot. Okay. I cannot move. Why? My fingers are all in a knot. Not. And they, uh, I don't have the strength to do what, Mark? Tell you to get up and take another take shot. Another oh, shot. Yes. My best friend, my doctor, won't even tell me, tell me what he's got. Okay. <laughs> and now we move on to sweet Melinda. What do the peasants call her? The goddess of gloom. gloom. She, why does she? She speaks very good English. And what does she do? Invites you up into Invites her, up room. her room. And, and what happens to you? You're so kind and you're careful not to go to her too soon. And yes. she takes what? Your voice and she leaves you howling, howling, howling in the mood. In the mood. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so we we move there. We go up on Housing Project Hill. What happens on Housing Project Hill? It's oh, either fortune or fate. It's either fortune, fortune or fate. You've got to pick one or the other, don't you? But Uh-oh. neither of them are to be what they claim. Eight. Oh, claim. Oh, sorry. Yes. If you're looking, if you're looking to get sick, saved, you better go back to from where you came. Where you because came. what what happens then? The cops, cops. don't don't need you, and, and man, they, they expect the same. The same. And look, it goes on, and it. You know, it, it and the point That's is, you know, the point is, we all know this, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we all know this? Because we've listened to him singing it thousands of times. Yeah. And yeah. why have we listened to him singing it thousands of times? Because we love the way he sings it. Have you at any stage in those 50 years, or however long it is since you first heard that, thought, do you know, I'd really like to hear somebody else sing this? I haven't for a second. Because his performance of that, it's just, it's what the thing is. That's the artwork to me, is his performance of that thing. Not the song. It's He's a recording artist, you know? I know I know. he, he famously goes on stage and mucks about with people's idea of what, what those things should be. But that's the thing that we fell in love with. And I think his singing, far from being a weakness, is his core strength. That's my point. Actually, you could also say with the performance that a lot of his recordings were done live, weren't they, as it were? They were done with yeah. a band rather True. than building up layer by layer by layer and all the instruments oh, sure. and, and then and then adding the vocal at the end. And so that adds, right up to the records he's making now, that adds to the feeling that it is a performance because they're actually all there in the room and doing it. Plus, he firmly believes, obviously, that that version of the song is just the version of the song they recorded that day and that the song is, is permanently in evolution as we can see from his stage performances. But he, yeah, but he may not be right about that. <laughs> no, I don't think he is, actually. I mean, the <laughs> yeah. way I feel about it, I was looking up this morning to see which was the song that he'd played most live. Do you know which it is? And do you know many, how many times it's he's played? It's probably blowing in the wind or something it's like that. It's all along the Watchtower, and oh, he's yeah. played it live 2,220 times. Right. Can you imagine? And the great proud boast for all those who support this is that, well, he's never played it the same way once. You know, I kind of personally think uh, I wish he would, actually, but there we are. But that's pretty yeah. astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. So, so that's my point. What about you, Mark? Well, my point is that I can't think of anybody 
as famous and successful, and in, in his case, for 60 years, one of the most famous entertainment figures in the world, spokesman for his generation, about whom we still know, on a personal level, virtually nothing. And that really, really fascinates me, because anybody you're interested in, you can do a little bit of research, you can find out quite a lot. Not with Bob Dylan, he fictionalised his life from the moment he changed his name. He came to, to, to New York in the first review written about him by Robert Shelton. Shelton says, um, this is September 1961, Shelton says, Mr. Dillon is vague about his birthplace and his antecedents. He then convinced John Hammond, I'm fairly sure I'm right in saying that he was an orphan because uh, at the age of 21, under 21, as he was only 20 when he signed his contract, you had to have your parents sign the contract oh, right, for you. Yeah, yeah. Convinced him he was an orphan and didn't have any parents. He wrote his own press releases. He, I think, has only ever written one obviously autobiographical song, which is actually about somebody else, which is Sarah. Um, mm. In all the interviews he gave in, in the very early days, you know, he kind of made, didn't he, he invented all that fiction about being a kind of, a sort of dust bowl refugee, and he was this hobo, and he jumped freight trains. And people either believed him or they chose to believe him because they just went with it. It was really interesting editorial. Um, in all the very rare number of interviews he's done, he's been elliptical and evasive. Chronicles, when it came out, everyone thought, fantastic. Bob Dylan's written, you know, the first episodes of his memoir. Well, obviously it was based on, it was actually just a, a, an enlarged version of three lots of sleeve notes that he was doing at the time. We know that. So, it, but it was entirely about his artistic life. You do find out things about him. You find out that he went to see Little Richard. He went to see The Wrestlers when he was in Hibbing in, in Minnesota when he was a kid, how that affected his idea of stage performance and stagecraft. You find it also, but you don't find out anything about his domestic life, about his brother, about his parents, about his childhood, about growing up. Um, you you get to the point where, you know, he then becomes obsessed with this idea of myth-making. Ronaldo and Clara is just myth-making and role-playing. You know, uh, Scorsese's recent uh, yeah. Rolling Thunder thing was called, I think it's called, um, it's called Rolling Thunder, A Bob Dylan Story yes. by Martin Scorsese. For the simple reason, as far as I can see, and I've watched it twice, is that he must have thought, I'm going to make this film. What I need to do is get an interview with Dylan. He interviews Dylan, and in the interview with Dylan, Dylan just invents enormous amounts of stuff. He invents, I mean, I mean, a lot of it's just lies, isn't it? You know, that's the other thing about Chronicles, of course. People, a lot of people believe that a lot of Chronicles is lies too, his, his memoir. Yes. But going back to the Rolling Thunder, you know, he invents the idea that, oh, he, they got the idea for the white face from seeing Kiss in 1972. Um, Sharon Stone came on the road with them when she was 17 and did the ironing, all those kind of things. He makes <laughs> up a fictional tour promoter. Uh, and so then Scorsese thinks, well, I've got this material. I've got to use it and goes out and casts people to play the fictional tour promoter, yeah. etc. I think that's really interesting. There's a bit where, um, a lovely bit in Rolling Thunder where he's with Joni Mitchell. I'm sure you remember that clip. And she's singing Coyote. And yes. uh, she was on the tour for a while and didn't kind of get on with him at all. No, man. They really didn't get on. You can see there'd be a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, they wrote a song afterwards called Talk To Me. Mr. Uh, Mr. Mystery, Talk To Me, because she, he just gave nothing away. and It, it exasperated her that, he, that she couldn't get any kind of conversation out of him. So my thought is, what do we know about Dylan? You know, we know very little. I mean, we know he's a middle-class kid from Hibbing, Minnesota. He's a son of a store owner. He went to the University of Minnesota. You know, these days, if he'd launched now in the days of social media, the whole thing would have been blown, you know. He's got a house in Malibu. He's got a house next to his brother's place up in Minnesota. Um, you know, we, we don't even know how many kids he's got. He had four yeah. children with Sarah. Uh, we think that he had... Um, more kids with he had a child, I think, called Desiree with Carolyn yeah. Dennis. I yeah. think he married Carolyn Dennis. Yeah, he did. Supposedly has a child called Norette with Clyde King. I think he married Clyde King. I'm not sure I think actually. He did too. Yeah. There's a suggestion he married Carol Woods and has a child with her. There's a suggestion he has 10 children, you know. And I think that's I think it's absolutely extraordinary that, that this man who's been in our world for so long has been so phenomenally clever and giving away absolutely nothing about himself. And that yeah. adds to the mystery. I'm, I'm sick to death of, uh, of uh, conjecture and, and uh, debate about what any of the songs mean. That doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter what the songs mean. No, they doesn't. mean something to you, they mean something to you. What it's meant to mean is just nonsense. There's no universally right answer to that. But what I am really fascinated by 
It's just any factual information about Dylan. You know, it's like this idea of, uh, of welding and painting. That's what he's given out to the world as what he does when he's not actually on the road on endless tours. And we've accepted that. We just kind of think now that Dylan gets up in the morning and and kind of gets out an enormously complicated set of oxyacetylene welders and kind of bolts a couple of gateposts together. And that's what he kind of does when he isn't on the road playing all along the Watchtower for the 2,221st time, you know. So that's my my point about him, is that I I can't think of any other entertainment figure who's been going that long, who's given so little away. I used to, uh, in, in Los Angeles, through a wonderful lady who's no longer with us, the late, great Michelle Meyer, I used to hang out with Michelle, and she ran the Starwood, which is, it was the Whiskey A Go-Go and Troubadour's great rival. And she introduced me to Billy James, who was the publicist who did the very first interview for, with Bob Dylan for, the, uh, for uh, CBS Columbia Records back in whatever it was, 62. And Billy James was a lovely guy, big supporter of the birds, and uh, uh, just a great guy. And he said from Dot... He believed everything Bob Dylan said in the initial interviews because they didn't have any you know, press on him. He's just this kid when, they, when John Hammond signed him. So we have to do an introductory interview to get some biography on him. And he said, everything that Dylan said, I believed. He said all this stuff about I ran away to the circus and I was living in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And then I was in El Paso bumming around. He said, I believed every single thing because this is one of the reasons I, I don't know if I admire Bob so much as I find him fascinating. No compulsion to play the game as the game is played by everybody else. If yeah. someone did an interview with me, I would say I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. My father, uh, you know, went to MIT, you know, and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff that happened, yeah. right? Dylan, Billy James says from Dot, and for years, Dylan lied to him, just made all this stuff up. And Billy James, you know, a, a great man who dealt with everybody from, from Tony Bennett to Paul Revere and the Raiders. Yeah on that label, Andy Williams and, and symphony orchestras and the whole thing. And, and Goddard Liebertson dealt with all the legends of American, uh, the American record industry. Said Dylan lied from dot did no compulsion to stick to anywhere near the truth, which goes back to one of my fascinations with him. As I've said so many times, he doesn't play the game. How can the same guy wear the same jacket on 1966's blonde on blonde, (laughs) 1967's John Wesley Harding and 1969's Nashville Skyline. It's the exact same jacket, the exact same coat. You don't think that in his guy, he's the ending being the the, uh, the dandy of uh, Carnaby Street with Blonde on Blonde, and he's morphing into uh, being a farm guy, and he is a farm guy by the time of Nashville Skyline. You don't think you might want to change your coat for the front cover shot? And on the just riffing on why Dylan is 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 so unique, and because of that uniqueness, fascinating to me. You lie to your publicist. You don't really care. You have this crazy idea of of image, which can morph. It's amoeba like image that he can seemingly mold any clay like image better, which he can mold any way he wants to go to. On that cover of John Wesley Harding, and I, I defy anybody to who else in pop music has done this. Anyone, anyone. He's got the builder that's yeah. repairing Albert Grossman's yeah. fence on the, on, the, on the thing. Two of the Bengali balls. Yeah. And there's this sphere at the bottom. I was trying to reach <laughs> over to get the cover. I couldn't quite get it. There's this sphere at the bottom. That is the top of a cowboy hat from somebody who's been cut out of the photograph. And apparently, I've heard it's John Berg, the great, the legendary Columbia art, artwork guy. I mean, what kind of haphazard cover, does, cover is that, particularly during the era of... Uh, Martin Sharp doing covers like Wheels on Fire and uh, and the the Beatles doing covers like uh, Sergeant Pepper's Peter Blake cover and so on and so forth. What kind of guy does this crazy stuff? Dylan, and and the other one that I, I frequently bring up is, uh, just the other day there's an article on the O-Pairs and Leslie Wood and the, and the gang were saying how they could have done better if they'd have taken a break. They did 200 gigs one year and they were fried and they broke up and they shouldn't have broken up. And the specials have said that, that their initial... They, work too much live, but that's how you break bands. You play, you play, you play, you play, you play. We all know that. In 64, Albert Grossman thought it was a good idea to take Bob off the road, to take Bob off the road because it would help build up a mystique. Who does that kind of stuff? Only Dylan. I find only Dylan is the answer to so many things. Only Dylan. And the fact that he doesn't play the game and his brand, he's a horrible, yuppie 21st century phrase, and his brand is still expanding, I find amazing. I find fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Do you think also I, um, that um, I find that uh, you can listen to his old records 
And apart from the fact that you remember when they come out, you can't place them. You know what I mean? The, the, the more out of time they sound, the better. You don't think, oh, that's an early 80s record or that's a 90s record or a 70s record. You know they are because you remember that. Yeah. But but, but what that will apply to most, you know, if you go and listen to Bruce Springsteen records, you can hear the ones that are made yeah. in the 70s and the ones that are made in the 80s and the 90s because they kind of reflect the technology. And there is also there is also a feeling that I have to keep up with things, which Bob Dylan has never seemed to yes, bother with at all. Remotely. Because I was thinking about it this morning. You know, most uh, musicians of his vintage, and, you know, people like Elton John is a classic example, are always doing duets with whoever is the hot new thing or, or doing a song by somebody yeah. who's happening at the time, to partly to prove that they're still, you know, all there. I don't think Bob Dylan's ever done that, has he? Never well, done that. You know, during the great examples for me were during disco, uh, uh, the Kinks had a song called Fly Superman, and uh, the Beach Boys did a disco version of uh, Here Comes the Night. And I understand why. It's a blatant, obvious attempt <clears throat> to cash in on what's going on at the present time. I have no yeah. problem with that. I understand how that's the game is played. But you, you, there's, you think Bob Dylan thought, yeah, let's have a backbeat for one of my songs and we'll get on the charts. I and mean, it's just, it doesn't come up. It no, does not come up. And his courage is absolutely astonishing. You know, that we were talking about this uh, uh, the other day, Sid, you talking about the fact that just when he got his folk audience, just when it was going superbly yes. well, he decides to become an electric artist, you know, which is obviously going to antagonise a lot of his following, you know. And if you think about the way the Beatles evolved, you know, the Beatles would put out a record that had... Um, Tomorrow Never Knows on it. But it was also the same record that I'd hear there and everywhere. Mm. So they had a safety net. You know, the familiar yes. Beatles were still there. They put out a record that had uh, Revolution Number 9. But if you look a little bit earlier, you find I Will. So you're, you're not going to stray very far from the particular Beatles that you really love, and you're not that rattled by it. But Bob Dylan just wholeheartedly changed tack with with that tremendous courage and i still think that the the you know that the, the john wesley harding is just absolutely astonishing that so at I. a time of so peak of of uh, psychedelia he's writing these timeless songs about uh, characters from the 5th century i mean that's just takes so much courage and so much nerve and oddly enough john wesley harding was at number 1 in britain for a month really yeah. yeah. at the end of 1967 Wow. Absolutely extraordinary, yeah, yeah. really. Yes. I'll Be Your Baby Tonight was, you know, it was played on the radio. It was number one for a month at the end of the year of Sgt. Pepper. That is, is ex extraordinary to yeah. think. Absolutely. It, it's, it, it is true. I, I like uh, a couple of young guys I like are Jason Isabel and this guy Sturgill Simpson. And if either one of them put out John Wesley Harding now, it would sound perfect. You'd think, oh, good, an Americana album. This is lovely. John Wesley Harding by Sturgill Simpson or Jason Isabel or a number yeah. of these guys, Hayes Carl, you know, a yeah. number of these guys. You you wouldn't blink an eye. And it's a 53-year-old record or 54-year-old record. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. And it's, it, it, that isn't sort of one great definition of timelessness or sort of out of time, to quote Bob. I don't know what is. I don't yeah. know what is. yeah. So, all right, pick one favourite record then. Go on, one favourite Bob Dylan record. You can be as mad as you like. As, you mean you once know. we're going to do God. one song? Are we yeah. that? Can, we, can we have just a couple of run-ups to it oh, as well? Oh, go on. That Is it right. a song? I, I'm going to do what you like. For, I don't mind. For, go on. I was going to pitch in just one of my favourite couplets comes from Blind Willie McTell. And Blind Willie McTell is so magnificent because when we first heard yeah. that as a bootleg, you thought, my God, the stuff is good as this that he's not releasing. You he doesn't release. I know. <laughs> but what I love is the, is the, is the, 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 the lyrics that are, are both a combination of, of supercharged poetry and also a conversational. And there's a great line in uh, Blind Willie McTell says, God is in his heaven and we all want what's his, but power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all that there is. Which I think is an absolutely fantastic line. Mm. And I love uh, I love Poor Boy from uh, Love and Theft. Love, the Love and Theft kind of keys into this extraordinary, he, he moves into different areas. That's really a record about this sort of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Deep South, I think. And it's a wonderful song about, you know, the scuffling poor, uh, trying to make a living in the world of the rich, which is also the theme, I suppose, with Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. 
absolutely one of my favourites, you know. Just him, he wrote it, I think, in 20 minutes in a cafe with a newspaper article in front of him. Most of the newspaper article finishes up in the song. William Zanzinger, who had 24 years, owns a tobacco farm of 600 acres. You know, it's an amazing song. But my, I think my fave, my fave would probably be what we talked about earlier, it should probably be I Dreamed I Saw St Augustine, partly because I was so mesmerised when that record came out. How old would I have been? 12, I suppose. Yeah, I was 12, I think, when it came out. I was just mesmerised by how, as we were saying, how in 1967 he could put out this record. The first four tracks, in fact, are very, very similar. They're all uh, three verses each. Each song has wow. four lines. They are John Wesley Harding, As I Went Out One Morning, uh, St. Augustine, and All Along the Watchtower. They're comp- apart from John Wesley Harding, it's obviously about a, a 19th century bandit and outlaw. They're completely timeless. There's no reference in that to any kind of modern world. They're absolutely magical. They're so spare. You know, he just did it with bass drums, acoustic guitar, harmonica. I was going to put an electric guitar over the top, wasn't it? Didn't bother. And I think that I think those are amazing. This is the year of you know Big Brother and the Holding Company and the Israeli Gears and Ichiku Park. You know? and, he, and he's writing about there are two Saint Augustines. One Saint Augustine of Hippo, who I think was probably the one who's a Christian theologian and, and philosopher from the fifth century. And to be writing a song about that, it's just yeah, right. so moving exactly. and so poignant. You know, I love the idea that that's that kind of he's changing from his earlier work could, could kind of be. Could, could, you could generalise that as being this kind of intense virtuosity. The later work is a kind of uh, elegiac uh, kind of reflection. And that's a kind of turning point. It's got a little bit of both of them. It's suddenly getting kind of soft and, and uh, reflective. It's fantastic. Sorry, that's not one. That's not an answer to your question. No, you no, that's one. very divine. You one. I, I, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I, would, I would agree with you about John Wesley Harding. It's probably, if people ever ask me, what's my favourite Bob Dylan record? Yeah. I often say that, you know, because yeah. it, I, it's the one I play more often than anything else. And I think the greatest service Robbie Robertson ever did to music was to listen to that when Bob Dylan wanted him to put guitar in it and go, no. It's fine as it is. It doesn't yeah. need me. Because it's the, you know, it always seems to me that the best thing a producer can ever say is, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the ultimate, that's enough decision. And um, no, the other one I was going to throw in just to kind of, just to accentuate the point I was making earlier, which is a kind of really odd one to throw in, but I think it indicates what a brilliant singer he is. And it's off a record that nobody talks about at all. Down in the groove, he does he does a song called uh, 90 miles an hour down a dead end street. Do you oh, know yes. this? Yes, yeah. I do, yeah. Which is a kind of strangely kind of hammy ballad about about you know somebody getting into a into a kind of extramarital clinch that they really or didn't ought to get into. And he suddenly makes it, he just makes it seem like the most dramatic thing that ever happened in the world. This song. That he didn't even write. Yeah. He just has that ability to make songs fascinating by the way he delivers them, whether he wrote them or not. So those are my two. What about you, Sid? Very good. I, I besides the obvious classics, I, I think one that really uh goes past a lot of people is Working Man Blues number two, which is off modern times. It's the rare song that I can hear. And it touches me every time I hear it. It's a very autumnal song to me. I think of leaves falling off of a tree when I hear it. And yet, it's got it's full of pathos. He sings very, very well. The band are as one. I, I'm a big fan of guys that take the touring band into the studio. And the band are as one. They're in lockstep with him. I would bet the ranch he's singing live with a band. I couldn't prove it in the mm. court of law, but I would bet the ranch he's singing live with a band on that one. And it's just a beautiful work to me, and it it slays me because I could hear it every day, and it doesn't get old. Uh, I there's almost nothing that you can hear every day, and you don't want to not hear it after a while. Working Man Blues number two, it's so sweet, it's so tender, and you think you know exactly what he means, and then another layer is unpeeled on that onion when you go back to it the next time. So, and it'll change from tomorrow. Maybe I'll have another song, but that one. I think Working Man Blues number two is an example. It's what is known, dear listeners, as a deep cut. It's not a particular <laughs> big hit of Bob's, but it's it's very rewarding, to say the least. It's very rewarding. And uh, I think 
He's got so many deep cuts, it's not funny. Let, let me interject something. Um, talking of Dylan's importance, I looked away rather rudely because somebody had just sent me the all-important listing of Dylan quotes from the 1960s. I needed that this morning on my on my email. I, I needed to read the important Dylan quotes from the 1960s. This guy sends out Dylan stuff almost every day. And I, I, I wanted to, in case you're wondering... I've got that all-important copy of Dylan's copyright files in case you'd like to cover Working Man's Blues or something like that, and you want to know who published it and, and who to contact. So here you go. You want to, you want to sing uh, uh, Every Grain of Sand? This is our friend Tim. He can sort you out. No, no, I'm, I'm interrupting before we get to David. <laughs> look, at, look at this. This is a Swedish fellow. These are just the first four volumes. Can you folks see? Olaf's files. This is Dylan's... Bob Dylan Files, A Performance Guide. Oh, good <laughs> Lord. If you'd like to know <laughs> when you saw Bob Dylan at uh, Lester's De Montfort Hall, what the fourth song was, well, by God, there it is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm well, there is a site that tells you every single song he's played and, and how, how many times he's played it, as I mentioned earlier on with All Along the Watchtower. Somebody and has gone through and compiled that. And what's and fascinating... What's fascinating is he he gets all excited on on the and I'm sorry Olaf I'm not making fun of you he's a very learned man if you if you read his uh, books but <clears throat> I had to have those books as reference for my own Dylan works okay so what what kills me is you go on some of the websites and somebody will say he did not play um, positively Fourth Street at De Montfort Hall and Lester at the third song it was the sixth song I remember exactly it's like. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. correct it in the next edition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, look, so that's Bob Dylan's birthday. Happy birthday to Bob. We'll be back in a moment. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. And here we are again. Uh, what's going on with this Sex Pistols film, Mark? What's happening? Well, the, the, the issue, as far as I can see, is that Danny Boyle started making this uh, for, for a TV series, uh, Sex Pistols, uh, uh, thing called, called Pistol, and he started shooting it. He's a month into shooting it. There's now a legal action, supposedly, that John Lydon is refusing to allow the use of Sex Pistols mu- music on the soundtrack. And there's a kind of counter-legal action because uh, Cook and Jones and Matlock and I think the Sid Vicious estate kind of think that legally they had it whereby, uh, 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 you know, a majority vote would get the rule. And uh, and, and Lydon is, is, is saying it's got to be uh, unanimity. So he's saying so, he's got a veto. What's your, experience veto. Of the, what's your experience of this, Sid, in, in bands? How do you find these things? I find this just shocking and surprising. I cannot believe they haven't sorted this out eons ago. Um, when things, I was in a number of unsuccessful bands in LA. As many people can make that statement, Sid. And, <laughs> and when the uh, the long wires started getting quite serious, and 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 real indie labels and real major labels start sniffing around, uh, uh, our manager John Guidari, who was a worked for uh, Miles Copeland. He, you know, it got quite serious. Long story short is I went to, uh, after sniffing around and chasing the the birds for trivia for years, I went to Eddie Tickner, who uh, managed the birds in their uh, heyday and then managed them again during Untitled. Because I knew Eddie from just uh, fanboy following the birds around. And and Eddie said, here's what you got to do. You got to have in the contract how the decisions are made. This is really important, Sid. How the decisions are made, you, that, that it's a majority uh, rule or whatever it is. Sometimes the alarm, it's my understanding, or his little gossip, maybe I shouldn't mention him, but the alarm, as I recall, had a thing we had to have all four guys go for it. If one guy said no, it was out. The Long Riders had a three to one. If three guys went for it, 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 it we, we went for it. And Tickner was uh, emphatic on saying you have to decide how you make the decisions and you can't leave somebody just steaming and angry in the corner. And uh, I, I, I cannot believe that this isn't, I can't believe this could go to court. I can't believe someone can't read the, uh, you literally, when you sign with a major label, at least you did, you, you have like an inch thick, three quarters of an inch thick contract. It's labyrinthian. It, the, the many quarters and hallways of it, no, it's written in legalese, so we can't understand it. But when you get a lawyer that breaks it down to you, one of the things they'll say is, how do we make the decisions? And I, I find this, I think my guess is 
he's in some way uh, throwing all the toys out of the pram, that he's upset about something. Why? And all, the other thing well, is... I, no, I think just th- to butt in there, I think he wasn't contacted about the whole project uh, uh, till January of this year. And so he may, it, that, that's likely to have coloured his the problem, aggressive yeah. stance. I think. If that, that would be why, you know, why didn't you... I'm the singer, what's your problem? But they have a revenue stream. Yeah. Yeah. They have to keep going. They do not exist as an entity now, and they have a revenue stream that it would be incredibly foolish not to uh, uh, to let to let, keep the spigot turned on. And I'm sure the other three or four, including the estate of John Simon Ritchie, uh, as it were, don't have the, the the funds Leiden has. They've not done any butter commercial or so on and so forth. They don't have a, a multiplicity <laughs> of public image albums that I think are still in catalog and still tick over. So he's in a way he's got the whip hand, even though he's just an individual guy. In the way he's got the whip hand, and he can upset the apple cart. But as to why I do it, other than my feelings are hurt that you guys didn't come to me early on, as Danny Boyle is such a prestigious and well uh, admired, well known director. Other than that, I can't. What is he? The great British phrase. What is he playing at? Well, also he's done this in the press, hasn't he? So it's possibly yes. it's possible. My learned friends don't know anything about this at all. You know, this is just throwing this out in the press to to, to get whatever kind of advantage. we're suing exactly. See you so, in court. So yeah, well, watch this. But isn't he? Here. Isn't that the way? My experience of him most recently was interviewing at the Chester Literary Festival, and uh, the day before he did the interview, he said he wouldn't talk about the Sex Pistols, and the promoters were in a terrible. <laughs> state go well there are 400 people it's sold out and they're all coming and they're you know actually it's much much more than that they paid a lot of money and you've got to talk. and of course he just does that just to wind people up you know i had a little word with them beforehand so i think you are johnny Well, okay. Well, well, all this this only increases my anticipation for Eamon ford's forthcoming book which is about rock and roll estates which i personally can't wait for seriously that's coming out later this year because they're yeah, rock and roll estates run and run. We'll all have to live with them for a yeah. long, long time. So um, we should just me- mention that they to record the sad passing of a former colleague yes. of, uh, of ours, Fred Della, um, who who died, uh, I think, about around about a week ago. Uh, at, at a fairly ripe old age, I think it's fair to say. I won't get too specific about it, but you know, they was a. Older than most rock hacks, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Um, by some margin. By some margin. I first met Fred when I was working in the HMV shop in Oxford Street in the mid-70s. And he used to come in to do the imports column, to research the imports column. And Fred was no, not, didn't look or act like in anybody's idea of a rock journalist because he's clearly, clearly a bit older. You know, he was, was a bit old school. And a very a sweeter man never, you know, you, you never met. And uh, when I eventually got up my courage to say to him, if I wrote a review, would you read it? And he did. He read it. And he said, well, it's as good as I could do. And then he handed it to Bob Woffington at the NME. And that was my first experience of getting anything published. And then a few years later, when I was completely out of work, I rang up Fred. I said, do you know any workaround? And he said, well, Nick Logan's just started this thing called Smash Hits. And so that was how I got involved in Smash Hits. So loads of people's experience of Fred over the years was immense knowledge and also just huge kindness and and just a really sweet guy to deal with. Didn't you find that, Mark? Oh, he was just the loveliest guy. I, I, I really remember meeting him. I remember coming. He always had a, a, a carrier bag. He was going to a record shop on the way in, often with old jazz records. I commissioned him to write a piece for Word once about being a member of the Frank Sinatra fan club, to give you some idea of, of his age, actually, because I think he was 18 at the time. And uh, this was in the late 40s. But what I remember is he would come in and this guy who seemed so much older than us and, uh, you know, would, would I found some singles uh, on the Internet of his smash hit singles. And here he is, you know, writing about Vice Squad and uh, Bauhaus <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's lovely. And uh, Pauline Black and Hey Elastica. And he, would have, he would have been 50 at the time, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would have been over 50, actually. The Piranhas. It's just it's one of the bell stars. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. But I, I've got the fondest memories of him. And also, you know, there was no Wikipedia, was there, in those days? Absolutely. If you wanted information, you had to go to somebody who either knew it or just had a huge collection it, of references. He had books. files. The thing about Fred, yeah, he asked him a question. If he didn't know the answer, he said, I'll go and look in my yeah. files, you know. 
because you relied on those kind of people. Did you ever deal with Fred since? Yes, Did you ever come I, from I, I got on the elevator at uh, Mappin House back when uh, so much of it was in uh, Mappin House between Marketplace and uh, yeah, yeah. Oxford yeah. Street. And uh, the elevator got briefly stuck, and there were three of us in the elevator. And I, <laughs> I told Fred Deller, who didn't know who he was, I said, uh, I like your bow tie, and uh, you've tied it very well. Most people don't understand that tie the bow tie, it's it's a repetitive uh, movement that's it's got to be done right, or you'll be at sort of a three-quarters angle. And I we had this great discussion about bow ties. It was only when we went down to the ground floor, got out, and we're on the sidewalk. It's continuing to talk about how to tie the bow tie. <laughs> Yes, and he, he his kiss was perfect because you don't want him at an angle. You want it, you know, parallel yeah, yeah. to the parallel to the ground and yeah, uh, yeah. parallel to your belt. And we had this great conversation. And I said, you know, uh, I, I my father and mother, blah blah blah, and Sinatra and Sinatra wore bow tie frequently. And it was a big moment with the Bobby Sox was screamed a bit like uh, McCartney and Harrison would go woo and shake their their hair, yeah, yeah, and yeah, the girls yeah. would go wow. Well, when Sinatra would be singing like the fourth or fifth ballad of the, the Bobby Soxer era in, say, 1948, or he would undo the bow yeah, tie yeah. with while, he, while he's singing and snap off the, the top button yeah, and the yeah. collar would come up and it'd come down. He'd be a bit Brian Ferry doing this or Brian Ferry being a bit Frank. And 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 Fred just lit up and said, oh, you know, it was the perfect thing to say to him. Bow tie and Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Yes. Perfect. His yes. two we, strong suits. We were on the street after getting out of the elevator. We were on the street. Oh, God, I don't want to exaggerate. At least 20, 25 minutes talking about Frank Sinatra and the bow tie and the importance of stagecraft. And also, Sinatra was a great one for microphone craft. You know, I'm going to hit a big note, so I take the yeah. microphone a little away from my yeah. mouth and all that. Yeah. And uh, he's the, Fred Deller is the guy that not only you could go to with any amount of absurd, obscure questions... He guided me through the, well, they're behind me now, the Sinatra collection I have. Because all I knew was there was an album called In the Wee Small Hours that was a classic. And I said, I don't know where to go past that. This is on the sidewalk once we exhausted the bow tie. And he named like seven or eight albums. And I could only memorize like two or three. But I went went and got them. And he was my go-to guy for Frank from, from there on out. And right. just the most sweet, affable guy ever. And Ooh, never, never, you know, many of us were like, you're typing away and, you, and someone asks you a question. You say, I'm sorry, I, I've got the fever now. I can't, I can't, you know, I'm sorry. Never with Fred Deller. He would no. stop and speak to you about whatever. He could have been in the middle of the great British novel. He would have stopped and given you his day, his time. Yeah, Lovely absolutely. Guy. So nowadays we have the internet. Back then we had Fred. Yeah. Sadly, sadly missed. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey. 